tell me, Captain, did you take any pictures on your trip? Yes, we took some pictures of the native girls, but unfortunately, they weren't developed. <laughs> but I haven't given up. I hope I'm, I'm going back in a couple of years. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 65, our row, Rohauer, and Groucho Hour. The uh, awkward title trend that we've been on lately really makes things easier, doesn't it? Uh, featuring Mike Rowe and what's the young man's name? Groucho Marx. Welcome, welcome, friends. This is Noah Diamond. It's a new year and it's a new day. It's a new month and it's a new week. It's a new episode and I'm wearing a new pair of pants. Well, they're new to me anyway. And I'm sitting here across the ocean from the same old Matthew Conium. Matthew, what's new with you? Uh, Aside from the year, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well, then what is there to do but introduce uh, the first of our two guests? Mike Rowe is a former stand-up comedian turned Emmy Award-winning writer and producer whose long list of credits includes Family Guy and Futurama, who has collaborated with a galaxy of great comedy stars, including Alan King, Martin Short, Adam Sandler, Eddie Murphy, and Andy Kaufman, just to name a few. His book, It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald, was published in 2021 by our friends at Bear Manor Media, and I sincerely recommend it to anyone interested in comedy. Welcome aboard, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. No, don't stand up. Come on. We're just here Sit to down, have fun, please. but thank you. You're just going to embarrass him. That's right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for being um, you here. You know what? Before we start, I'd like to do this once in a while. I uh, uh, I like to uh, promote my charity for one second because this is kind of important to me because I spend a lot of time here and uh, volunteer a lot, of, a lot of my time really with the uh, Balloon Animal Adoption Center. So important. And uh, we we do a lot of great work over there. We get a lot of balloon animals off the streets. You know, they come in, they got deflated limbs and, you know, big genitalia. And and we we just don't have the ceiling space for these animals. We don't. So uh, if you can't come by and adopt one, it's very important to us. And I'm sorry to uh, suddenly throw that at you, but, you know, it's just important to me. It's not not at all. I, I can. We're going to pipe in a Sarah McLaughlin song under that just to really drive the point home. That's important. As you can see, folks, Mike is already a very exciting guest for us to have on the podcast. Uh, but Mike has, in effect, one-upped himself by sort of bringing with him another guest who is, I think we can safely say, even bigger. And that guest is Groucho Marx. And in just a little while... We're going to hear some Groucho Marx audio that you are very unlikely to have heard before. Um, and yes, uh, the infamous Raymond Rohauer also plays a part in this story. And um, that is, by the way, his full name, the infamous Raymond Rohauer. And uh, we'll <laughs> get to him too. But uh, first, let's get to know Mike Rowe. Uh, Mike, we always begin episodes with new guests by asking them for their Marx Brothers origin story. In your book, uh, there is a delightful rendition of your origin story as a young comedy fan and how you got the bug and so on. And you mentioned the Marx Brothers frequently um, as being among the heroes you first gravitated toward. In fact, you talk about practicing your early stand-up in your bedroom with the audience being a Marx Brothers poster hanging on the wall. (laughs) I imagine it was probably the Night in Casablanca hookah poster. 
No, but oddly enough, it was of all posters. It was at the circus. Oh, okay. They they did a reissue of that in seventy two or three or something. You know, when that sort of new wave of the Marx stuff came out, and uh, so there wasn't like a lot of posters available anyway, except of course the hookah one that seemed to be the one everybody had. But, um, but I first discovered them. I was 12, 13, whatever. This was early 70s. And I was at my cousin's house and running around like idiots. And then I was just kind of like tired. I I just wandered to my cousin's house and the TV's on the living room. Nobody's there. And I happen to come in just as Duck Soup is starting with Groucho is like, uh, you expecting somebody? You know, that the seminal scene there. And it was all that, that stuff with him and Margaret Dumont. And I had already at that age kind of learned that uh, being funny gets you a lot of attention, you know, and suddenly I felt connected to this guy because there was something I felt was similar, just sort of being sarcastic and playful in that way. And I just was like, holy cow, what is this? I've not, and of course my mom is like, it's time to go. And I'm like, no, the thing is stuck. What are we, we can't. And then on the ride home, I'm asking my mom, like, who is this? What are they, what are they about? What's this? And my mom's trying to explain it to me. So of course I, I, for weeks now I'm combing through the TV guide, you know, March brothers, what is this? You know, and the next showing, and, and I wish I could remember which one it was, but it's on at, you know, one in the morning and I'm like 12 and I'm like, what am I going to? So I kind of secretly set my alarm clock you know, and then one in the morning, I'm up and I'm watching in this little 12-inch black and white TV. And I'm like, oh, man. And so now I'm hooked. And so that's the time, too, where the, the book started coming out. Wyatt Duck had just come out. I think the You Bet Your Life. So now I'm just, like, getting absorbed into it. And then I kind of got my cousin into it. And his older brother, my other cousin, knew about this. And he took us on this surprise trip. We, like, take off. It's, like, nighttime. I'm living in the East Coast in Connecticut, and we're driving off into this foggy night. And we pull up at this barn that was converted into a theater. Like, what's? And then as we pull in, all these kids around my age are dressed in their homemade March Brothers costumes. And they're just kind of running around the parking lot. And I'm like, what's happening? This is an event. I'm like, the March Brothers. And we go in. Uh, we were a tiny bit late because of the long line of the cassette. But we walk in right, I mean, of all movies, but it was the the uh, big store. But as we go in, it's that scene with Harpo with the typewriter and, and just the, the kids are dressed up and they're laughing. And it's just this big community event that like, I'm, I'm am I part of a cult now or what's happening? You know, so that became kind of the lifelong indoctrination i don't know what but it just i just became you know i did i think what you guys did which was like you get your little cassette recorder you record the movies on the tv you know and i still have that tape of like hear my sister laughing in the background and the next thing i'm doing i'm buying if you remember the the super eight this is war and the you know those little yeah pigskin capers (laughs) and uh I was at the point where I took my recordings from the TV, my little cassette recording, and I had the hand editor, and I'm trying to sync up the sound. I mean, this is how long ago. There was no hint of any kind of VCR, so I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm, You know, um, and then it kind of kept going in my life, right? So, like in school, in grammar school, 
to me, the classroom, I'm like, this is horse feathers to me. I'm in class, like standing up like uh, uh, Chico and Groucho, like, uh, Mr. Bro, what do you think of the Louisiana Purchase? I'm like, ah, it's got a nice beat. It's easy to dance to. You know, I just, any questions? Yeah. When was the War of 1812? <laughs> and uh, so I was disruptive in that way, but I would, it would create this fever in me where I just kept going. Uh, and I do remember that one day the teacher asked me to stay after class. And I'm like, oh man, I went too far. And, and so it's him and I in the classroom and he's like staring at me and I'm like, oh man, am I going to prison? What's happening here? He goes, look, we are having a variety show. And he says, I know how much you like the March Brothers. Do you and like get some friends and you want to write a sketch doing the March Brothers? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so now I'm, now we're like writing the sketch and we're doing a whole thing. It's Now it's like, it's, it's chasing me now, it feels like. Because again, it's part of my life now where I'm like, I, I wanted to hang out with the cool kids, but I didn't want to smoke or drink or do whatever what was considered the cool things. But if I could be funny you could be brought into this fold. So it just keeps growing into my life. And the same thing happened in high school. Teacher took me aside and said, we're having a variety show. Do you want to do stand-up? So then that started my stand-up career. And it just keeps going and going. And uh, it's just kind of changed my life, I guess, as, as starting as a kid. And it just presented all these these little moments that brought me kind of to where I am. One of the things that impresses me about your book and one of the things I relate to is you express such an equal reverence for and excitement about the classic old comedians who originated during the vaudeville era and the comedians who were current at the time in the period you were writing about the comedy stars of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, who are now sort of on their way to being the elder statesmen and elder stateswomen of comedy that Groucho and Milton Berle and Bob Hope were at the time you were getting started. And um, through your storytelling lens, it all feels like it's all one It's all one thing. It's not classic comedy and then the cutting edge. It's just all comedy. Um, and it's nice to experience it that way. It all comes out of the same faucet, you know. Um, and I wonder if you would just reflect on that, um, you and your work and your interest in comedy as a kind of bridge between these eras. What's also sort of interesting is emotionally, you know, why bring comedy into your life? And it, I'd have to say as a kid, it was sort of a stressful household, you know. But we sort of found peace when sitting in front of the TV watching funny stuff. With the family, it would be sitcoms. But with my dad, it would be bonding watching those guys. Don Rickles, Milton Burrow, Henny Youngman, all that sort of stuff. So you can also see the psychology of that and how that kind of became part of me. It's a, it's a another angle of the comfort zone of it. So not only does it bring me friends, but it sort of finds peace in the family, right? So then, so then I'm drawn to all aspects of comedy at, at this point, you know, from the March Brothers then to those uh, uh, old school comics to then the new wave of stand-up that was starting at that time when I was a kid. So it's the first time I'm seeing like David Letterman and Jay Leno and Freddie Prinze and all those comics from the 70s. So I'm, I'm absorbing it all. I'm just, I'm a sponge, you know, taking it all in. 
Um, in fact, you know, when I started doing stand up, which was, I was 16, 17, you know, or was that the year I started? I don't remember. Um, there was before the comedy boom. And in my hometown, I was in this little factory town called Waterbury, Connecticut. I was so hungry to do stand up that I would just wander into a bar that had like a band. And I'd go to the manager and I'd say, when they have a break, can I just go up and start telling jokes? So that got me started just doing stand up. And that eventually brought me to New York City. There was a, a stand-up comics contest in Hartford, Connecticut. I won that, and the prize was you get to audition then at the New York Improv, which is gone now. But I passed auditions at the Improv. I was 18 or whatever, and then eventually just moved to New York City. And now I'm suddenly living in Manhattan and, and doing my best to live this dream. But what was great about it was... I got to either work with or meet or hang out with all these comics that I was watching on TV. You know, I got to sort of get to know Andy Kaufman. I got to play drums for him when he did his Elvis impression. I got to uh, referee a few wrestling matches he did at the New York Improv and on a stage that was about the size of a tabletop. I ended up writing jokes for Roddy Dangerfield and that started where, again, as a kid, like with the Marx Brothers and the movies, I recorded also the comedians uh, and listened to the musicality of their jokes. I'm just absorbing all of this. I mean, I mean, especially Groucho's musicality. I mean, if you think of it, it's just there's something so great about it. And it's something I still carry, like when I was writing for the Comedy Central Roasts and those sort of things. That really came in handy. There was a lot of channeling of Groucho. But I was going to say, Roddy Dangerfield at the time was like the guy that was on Carson all the time. And that was the guy I recorded and listened to. And I was, you know, whatever, 16. And I'm trying those jokes on friends of like jokes about my wife and my lawyer and whatever. But, um, so there was a moment on a Tonight Show where Rodney comes out, and it was a, one of the few times where he actually talked about himself. And he said he uh, he talked about his comedy club in New York City called Dangerfields, and uh, he used to go by the name of Jack Roy. Uh, so then my little brain thought, like, I know his joke so well. What if I sent him? Jack Roy, some pages of jokes to Dangerfield, sent him directly to the club. And I got my mom's big, bulky manual typewriter, and I wrote out like two pages of jokes. Sent them and then just kind of forgot about it. And then like a couple weeks later, like like seven o'clock at night, the phone rings. My mom picks it up, and I'm in my finished off basement bedroom. My mom says, Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. I'm like, what? Like, hello, who's Ray? Hey, Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? How you doing? Well, um, yeah, how do you want to? And he's like, he was really complimentary of the jokes. Yeah, these are real funny, you know, but they're not for me, but these are good jokes. And he talked to me about 15, 20 minutes about comedy and stand up and, and what I needed to do in New York City. So when you get that endorsement at that age, it's like, wow, okay, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so yeah, so then once I got to New York, I got to work with him a little bit and write for him. And I do remember a moment like he, at his club, his dressing room was in the basement and he'd always walk around wearing a robe and I'm on the couch. I'm just doing, reading my stupid Joda. Yeah. 
hey, my wife knows it. And he's like pacing and nothing's happening. I'm not hitting with any jokes. And then he kind of reacts and he turns around and he starts peeing in the sink. <laughs> he goes, hey, don't give me a toilet down here. I got to pee in the sink. And I go, okay, I'm in showbiz. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah, the glamour, the glitz and glamour of, of big time showbiz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You alluded to. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil too much of your book because I genuinely want our listeners to read it. I I know you'll enjoy it. But there is a really heartwarming tale about how you sort of uh, you sort of gave Henny Youngman to your father for his birthday. This is true because, as I was saying, you know, bonding with my dad watching the old time comics was great. And for my dad's 60th birthday, I was able to get. Uh, had a young man to show up at his birthday party. It's like it's his 60th and there's everybody who's ever been a part of his life. There's 80, 90 people squeezed in this uh, basement party. Um, there's a DJ, so there's a sound system and I get up and everybody thinks, oh, Mike's going to do his stand-up or one, you know. And I'm like, and I go, no, I have a friend of mine who came in from New York who wants to say happy birthday to my father. And and he came down the stairs, he had the loud suit, he had the violin, and he comes down and my dad sees him and he kind of just jumps up and like pirouettes. And, you know, it's like he, he just can't. It, it's like, it's like if we, the Who showed up at our birthday party. I don't know, you know what I mean? So, uh, and he did 15 minutes and my dad heckled him and, um, and he had a book sighting. He had a merch table. <laughs> and, uh. It was funny because he goes, your dad, you know, your dad want one of my books? I'll sign it for him. I'll give him one of my books. And, and then he brought all, he go in my car and get the, and bringing in two boxes of books. And he's at a table and he's signing. Then he calls me the next day. All right. So it's uh, 400 for the books. I'm like, wait, wait what happened? <laughs> you know, it's for my charity. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, my dad talked about that day, you know, for the rest of his life. It was, it was great to have the opportunity or at least be in that place in my career where I can bring that to my dad, you know. And to bring it back to uh, our neighborhood here, where do we put you on the map of Marx Brothers fans? Um, what are your, uh, what, what comes at the top of your list as far as their movies or moments from their movies? It's always been Duck Suit for me. It may have to do with be, being the first one I saw and then eventually having, like, that was the first one I had on my set. You know, so that was like the first one I was able to listen to over and over, you know. Um, so that that one is always my favorite. And what's interesting to me is that even their lesser movies, I mean, I just like them. It's just sort of like that there's a feeling of sort of hanging out with your friends. These you kind of these are sort of people you know. You can look at one of their not-so-good movies as like, oh, it's kind of an off day. You know, I don't know. It's like, I don't... There's always reasons to like and enjoy, and, you know, you you can roll your eyes at some of the lazier stuff, I guess, they did. But Duck Soup is really the one I think that stands out the most for me, that really kind of is near and dear to my heart. Also, and this is sort of another, I guess, sort of tied to the whole emotional idea of everything. It kind of always kind of followed the arc of Groucho's career and his life, right? And I think it's because I knew I was going to have a life in comedy. I mean, obviously, I was not going to be anywhere near the March Brothers or Groucho. Maybe near Zeppo somewhere. I'm not sure. 
or maybe gummo. I don't know. But anyway, I, I just kind of knew this was going to be the arc of my life too. So I was curious of like, what is the arc of someone's life in comedy? And Groucho was a little bit of the map of that for me, because even as a kid, like the Charlotte Chandler book, I was drawn to because there's a lot of stuff of older Groucho hanging out with his old buddies and talking about the old days and reminiscing over their career and liking those moments. And, you know, I don't, uh, there's some doubt to the accuracy of the Charlotte Chandler book. I'm not sure. I don't know if you have any insight on that. And that's also why sort of I even search for any of the March Brothers stuff, even at way after their career, you know, finding the those old clips from the stuff, the shows he did before Carnegie Hall, looking at the Cabot stuff. And when he was on the Bill Cosby show, and he had that really, really old voice was done, you know, it just didn't even sound like him, you know, you smoke cigars, I see. <laughs> like he didn't even... So you know, those are the handsiest things to have for a comedian. So that you are a comedian. So that's why, you know, uh, I, again, been collecting, like, just stuff from the whole arc of their career, you know? Yeah, our listeners can't see it, but Mike is uh, talking to us. He's seated before a beautiful Love Happy poster uh, on, on the wall behind him, which uh, reminds me that uh, a, a pandemic project of yours was... Uh, a kind of rehabilitation of the later Marx Brothers films. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with uh, a, a, a film called Donkey Shines, which has amassed a, many thousands of views on YouTube. Uh, you're the man behind Donkey Shines, aren't you, Mike? And it's sort of uh, an attempt to take the last bunch of Marx Brothers films and weave the best of them into something more palatable. Yeah, it was kind of the perfect thing for to do during the pandemic. And... To me, editing is writing, you know, and I just like to write. And part of what it came from was that that lone piece of Groucho doing Go West, Young Man from Copacabana, where he, it was like the last time he was in his, kind of still in his prime in a way and did and had the original costume and, and grease paint. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And that was kind of the buttonhole I built the jacket around you know <laughs> um, it's funny when people watch it they kind of just think well this is just love happy with stuff put in it but I take that as a compliment because what people don't know uh, except Bob would probably know this but there's, a, there's an edit like every 45 seconds in that because like love happy for example there was, there was so much chuffa as they call it where there's just and I think it was a formula, not for the Marx Brothers movies necessarily, but I think for Love Happy, where they would find a joke and then do it three times. So in Love Happy, when Harpo is waiting outside the deli and he would help someone to their car and steal their stuff along the way and get them in the car. And so they, they did it three times. You know what I mean? So, for example, once is enough. What's the funniest one? Take out the other two. You know, and the other fun thing about the edit is because it's Harpo and Love Happy, there's a lot of clean music beds to lift. And then it helps tie in all the other clips that aren't the same movie. Um, yes. Or 
or if there's times where a scene in Love Happy where there's a dramatic moment happening, why isn't there no music? And then I slip the music under it. So there's, you know, there's probably 5,000 edits in that thing. So in, in a way, ultimately, it's sort of like, what if we really put Groucho into Love Happy is kind of the theme of it, you know, and trying my best to do it seamlessly and to make it all feel like one movie. Because there were other funny scenes I could have pulled from other movies, but then I, I tried to make it fit the narrative. Even if you look at Groucho, when he's with, uh, I forget the actress, when he's he keeps trying to woo her and he has to pick up the record player and the flowers and the wine, you know. Night in Casablanca is where that footage is from. The, the Night, yeah, Night Casablanca. Seduction scene. She, in that scene, has to set him up so he's going to get murdered. So there's a bunch of different things she needs to do. And she has to re- leave a letter when it's time to go to uh, the next place when he wants to change venues. So I had to cut out like the letter thing because it didn't make sense. And I think if people don't notice that stuff, then I think that's that's good on my part. Yes, uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, Donkey Shines, and it's a it's a tight less than an hour. I think it's forty seven minutes, and it's yeah. true. The more familiar you are with the late Marx Brothers films, the more you'll find to admire about the way they've been uh, woven together. Yeah, using Love Happy as the kind of uh, framework for it, but um, but it's a real job, and we will uh, link to it on our website um, accompanying this episode. And if you think about it. Room service and love happy are both the same theme. It's like we got to put on a play, right? So it was kind of easy to use those two things and meld them together. Yeah, and Copacabana is kind of in the same world as 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 those two. Also, it's strange. It's like they make this unofficial trilogy of late New York show business stories. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but it was fun. It was just fun to do, but it was a great distraction. And I'm surprised, you know, over two hundred thousand people looked at it. If I had that many viewers, it'd be a hit TV show in this world. Yeah, and it's always fun to see with things like that, the YouTube comments from people who are saying, hey, this isn't a lost Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> I didn't read the description, but I'm going to talk about it. I think maybe they felt duped because they do a whole little, you know, 45 second thing of like this dramatic thing of the history of Harpo who wanted to get this movie made and the trouble he ran into. And yeah, the, the dramatic shots of the cans of film in the in the vault and you know right a so. little documentary intro uh well which is terrific and uh, our, our listeners will enjoy it um and can find the link on our website um well i suppose we should uh move ourselves along to the main course for this episode but first we have to grapple with the ghost of raymond rohauer if you are ever in a room full of film preservationists, classic film buffs, particularly silent comedy buffs, if you want to hear incredible vitriol, if you just want the mood in the room to change immediately to one of outright hostility, just say the name Raymond Rohauer. Uh, he is, as we said earlier, infamous. He mostly is known for manipulating copyright law. He would find silent movies of which there were very few available prints, buy the available prints, find the descendants of the writers who were responsible for the underlying copyrighted story material in the movie, 
buy them off for a few hundred dollars and thereby acquire the rights to all these films. And uh, he's sort of the ultimate collector hoarder uh, that many of our past guests have uh, have had a lot to say about. He became an ally of Buster Keaton's early on. He indeed had a lot to do with the preservation and release of some of the Keaton comedies early on, and that's on the list of things that we can thank him for. But he was a he was a a, a lawyered up guy, famous for suing people left and right, sometimes uh, on very shaky grounds. He was notorious for making tiny changes to silent films and then releasing them under new copyrights. You know, the film preservationist and historian David Shepard made a, a short film, which you can find on YouTube and on our website, called Raymond Rohauer Presents the Sneeze, which is an edit of the Edison film, The Sneeze, which is like a 10-second film of a man sneezing. And Shepard outfitted that film with all these credits, giving Raymond Rohauer all this credit for devising and editing and conceiving it. It's a very, uh, a real bullseye critique of Rohauer contained in that version of The Sneeze. So that's who we're talking about. He's sort of um, uh, w- one of the kind of great mythical figures in um, a field that has kind of changed what it is and what it's for over time. And it's a bit, it reminds me a bit of, of zoos, um, how nowadays zoos paint themselves as kind of conservation driven. They're all about, you know, preserving vanishing species and all this sort of thing, you know, whereas they used to be just cages where you'd come and gawp at, at funny looking animals. Uh, and, and, and kind of film preservation, I think, has, has sort of taken that path where it's now all about, you know, conserving and sharing and all that. But it, in, in the old days, it was just about hoarding and, and grabbing and, and owning. And he's kind of like the king of that, isn't he? Um, to the extent that he would even actually, you know, splice in, you know, hack out the, uh, the original uh, producing company uh, credit in the, uh, and stick in his own name, Raymond Rohar Presents. Uh, you know, and he would deface, uh, he defaced the old Dark House until very recently we only had, you know, the, the, the one that says Raymond Rohar Presents hacked over the top. So he, he was like this big colourful character um, uh, uh, of a kind that has sort of been left behind by time, you know, by in, in his own field. So he kind of stands out now as, as, as a, almost as a kind of a bogeyman figure. Um, I guess at the time, though, he probably wasn't so different from lots of other people, except he was really, really good at, at that. Yeah, right. He was good at it. He was also by, and, and Mike can confirm this for us uh, in a moment, but one thing you find uh, written about him a lot, even in uh, things that are very uncomplimentary in general, is that he was enormously charming. I mean, he was a very likable man who didn't have much trouble attracting people to his side of things. Um, he had a certain showbiz gregariousness that worked in his favor. And also, you know, a lot of these reputations do deserve another look. Um, it does seem like Rohauer probably deserves a lot of the vitriol he gets. But, you know, Richard J. Anoboli, who happened to be a protege of Rohauer's and worked for him at the Gallery of Modern Art. Rohauer wrote the introduction for Anoboli's book of Buster Keaton films. Um, you know, uh, it used to be pretty fashionable among Marx Brothers fans to be very down on Richard J. Anoboli, talk about him as being infamous and notorious and shady um, and all that. Um, we realized fairly recently, well, we've all been sort of repeating the 
Aaron Fleming line about Anoboli, haven't we? And his reputation deserves another look. And actually, what did he what did he do that was so terrible? And the answer is pretty much nothing. I was not able to find that much sunlight in the Rohauer story, but uh, it's always <laughs> worth um, revisiting these uh, these people who have been the subject of so much hostility and see if they deserved it. So, Mike, how did your path cross with Raymond Rohauer's? Well, first of all, oddly enough, at the time, and I was 25 or something, but he was more of a hero, right? Because I didn't know any of this stuff and I didn't really know him. But he was a hero because the story to me was like he stumbled across like all of Keaton's films, these 60 millimeter prints, I guess, at, at James Mason's house, I think is the story. Or Mason pointed him toward the, the archive or something. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a hero because the idea was if he didn't find these films, then they would have been lost. And we've been without all this Buster Keaton stuff. And then at the same time, Buster Keaton, because of him and because of what happened, he got to see a new young audience discover him, rediscover him. And he got to live that in his later days. So sort of that was my vision of what this guy did. And this information came from mostly uh, one my best friend, one of my best friends at the time in New York City, was working with Roe Hauer on, there was a three-hour Thames documentary on Buster Keaton. I don't know if you remember that, probably done mid-80s. It was actually pretty great. And I don't even remember what his participation was, but he was sort of an important part, it seems, of getting that documentary done. So because of my friend, I got to know him. And in my first meeting with him, it was in uh, New York City. There was this uh, uh, hangout place called Barrymore's, this bar that was uh, this great bar where all the Broadway actors would hang out and everything, and we used to every week and then so Raymond Rohar was going to be there with my friend so I was going to get to meet him and on that day my friend and Rohauer well first of all Rohauer lent a lot of Buster Keaton stuff some stills and information to this author named Rudy Blesch Rudy Blesch wrote a, a biography on Keaton in the 80s so Rudy Blesch wanted to just keep all the stuff that he was that was lent to him to use for the book, and Rohauer kept like I'm I'm doing this thing for Thames, I need the stuff, and he just like we put him off and put him off, and so I met him that the night of during the day, he and my friend broke into Rudy Blesch's house, his apartment somehow, and. Uh, by breaking in, I mean, I guess they went to the manager and then opened his apartment, whatever. But they went, just went in and just took the boxes of the Keaton stuff and retrieved it. So, and again, in a way, it's sort of heroic because he saved a couple boxes of Keaton stuff that would have been lost forever. I mean, it's all original stuff. And in fact, Rudy Blesch at the time was in his 80s and passed away literally months later. And then that would have been the end of that. So, uh, that was my meeting with Rohauer that night, and they were kind of reveling in this caper of retrieving this material. And they go, this is pretty cool. So then there were a couple times, like I went with my friend to his uh, New York City apartment, and his apartment, of course, had shelves of master tapes and film and stuff like that, and uh, and he, you know, heard me talking a lot about the Marx Brothers and. So he had somebody says, well, I have some stuff 
that you might like. And he gave me the cassette tape. And his thing was, this is only for you. You cannot, you know, let anyone else hear it. Don't make copies of it. I mean, you can let people hear it, but just don't make copies of it. I want you to protect this, basically. He asked me to protect it. And it, it's the interview we're going to hear shortly. And in truth, I did protect it. I, I, you know, even not that many people have heard it. Stolier, of course, heard it. Uh, maybe five other people. I, I don't know why I felt some sort of allegiance, <laughs> but now it's going to be revealed. Well, let's clarify for our listeners. The interview that we're talking about and that you are soon going to hear uh, was conducted in 1967. It was conducted, to be specific, on March 8th, 1967. It's Raymond Rohauer interviewing Groucho Marx for the booklet that accompanied the Marx Brothers uh, Film Festival and Tribute at the Gallery of Modern Art in New York City. The Gallery of Modern Art was a kind of I don't know, a faux institution that was started by the supermarket heir Huntington Hartford. Um, it was given a name that was supposed to deliberately confuse people into thinking that we might be talking about the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA. Um, but it wasn't that. This is the Gallery of Modern Art. Raymond Rohauer was all too pleased to be the film curator for this kind of fly-by-night makeshift institution that nevertheless had some funding and some power behind it. And due to Rohauer's film connections, they genuinely were able to present some now legendary film festivals in the 60s, including many people's first glimpses of Buster Keaton's great comedies. Um, so this is not entirely a shifty and bad thing. Um, now, this booklet that was published in connection with the Marx Brothers presentation at the Gallery of Modern Art contains a print interview with Groucho that's fairly familiar. Many of us are, know that interview, and it's been quoted in numerous places we'll talk about later. Um, it also, that booklet includes a short interview with Maxine Marx, um, which includes one of the most often referred to accounts of how Zeppo might have gotten his nickname. Um, so, so the audio we're talking about here that was given to Mike Rowe by Raymond Rohauer is the raw audio that became the interview that appears in print in the Gallery of Modern Art booklet. Uh, this is an interview with uh, Groucho Marx, uh, recorded on March 8th, 1967, to be used in the brochure, uh, the tribute to the Marx Brothers. Uh, Groucho, I wonder if you have any comments to make about uh, working with your brothers, Ch Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo in, your, in the early films, beginning with um, the, the Coconuts, 1929. Mm -hmm. You mean what kind of comments? Uh, well, first, uh, how, uh, how did the act first get together for motion pictures? Well, we'd been in vaudeville many years before that. Small time and big time. We had a very big act. We decided it was adding few more things to it, we'd have enough for a Broadway play, and that was I'll Say She Is. That was our first Broadway play in around a year in New York. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, uh, which year was that? Was that 1924 or 5? Mm 
See, was your mother uh, largely uh, responsible for bringing the act together? Well, she was a contributing factor. I wouldn't say she was largely responsible. See, her brother was in show business, and he was a star at that time, Al Sheen of Gallagher and Sheen. And she was kind of uh, misty-eyed about show business and thought it would be a great thing for us. And we wouldn't have to work. Mm -hmm. You'd just be an actor, and then you don't have to get up early in the morning. <laughs> I see. Uh, <clears throat> well, the... Uh... I was the first one on the stage. Oh, I see. Alone? Alone, yeah. Mm -hmm. As a singer. That's when I was 14, and I went out on, on the road with a show called The Man of Her Choice, in which I played the hero. And in between the acts, I sang songs. Because mm -hmm. I used to sing in the Protestant church on Madison Avenue in the choir. Before that, and I had a good voice. And then uh, Gummer went in the act. And he could sing well, and then... That was about 1917 when Gummo was in, wasn't it? 1916? Well, he was in the First World War. And then uh, he'd been in the act before the war. It must have been around 1912. He was around 15 then. And then Gummo and I were in the act, so then we put Harper on the act. And uh, he couldn't sing, so he became the comedian of the three. And he played a butcher boy with a yellow wig, a red wig, and a basket of frankfurters that he was ostensibly taking to somebody's house to deliver them. Then we got another kid and put him in the act because we wanted to be able to sing harmony and only Gummo and I could sing, and Harpo couldn't. So we got a boy and put him in the act, and called the act the Four Nightingales. And our verses started changing, as they do from those ages. And we decided to emphasize the comedy, so we started to invent jokes and use them in the act and eliminate a good deal of the singing. Because uh, we found that the audiences were in a pretty hostile mood when we sang. <laughs> it uh, wasn't really safe to be on the stage. <laughs> so, uh, from that, Chico was working uh, for a music publisher at that time playing the piano. So we put him in the act. Then we decided to make it a school act. And for a brief time, my mother and her sister who both could sing well, put them in the act, too. They were then around 45 years old, and they were playing schoolgirls, ostensibly around uh, 14 or 15 years old, which will give you an idea of how gullible the audiences were in those days <laughs> and how easily they were pleased. And we did the school act for two, three years, and it got to be very funny. Chico played an Italian, Harper played a a dummy, and I was the teacher. I got a gray wig, a white wig, and made myself up. And I was uh, 20 years old, and I made myself up. I looked older than uh, Mark Twain. I looked to be around 80 years old. 
Were these char characterizations, were they just uh, thought of impromptu or did you... Uh, more or less, did, yeah. You just sort of uh, tried them out, more or less, see how they would go with the audiences? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a film, a short film that was made, uh, Humoresque. Do uh, you remember anything about that film? No, it was not any good, and it was never finished. Oh, I see. Luckily, there are no copies extant. I see. Uh, but then the first film was uh, The Coconuts, Karma, right. 1929. Yeah. And... Uh, but by that time, we'd been in big-time vaudeville for 12, 14 years. Mm -hmm. Playing the Palace and the Riverside and all the theaters in New York, Brooklyn, Newark, Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, the whole tour. There was two tours in those days. There was the Keith Circuit and the Orpheum Circuit. Keith Circuit extended to the Mississippi River and the Orpheum went from there to the coast. And that was the big time. Mm -hmm. Did the film The Coconuts follow pretty much the stage, the stage play? Almost uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. So like a film version of the stage play. Right, yeah. Uh, were the uh, roles that you played in the film pretty much the same as they were in the stage? Yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh, there, no, there was no new, there was no additional material. Said it. I mean, oh, no, film. we did a play before the Coconuts. Mm -hmm. We did a play called I'll Say She Is, mm -hmm. which was uh, an enlargement of our vaudeville act. We played a year in that at the Casino Theater on 39th Street and Broadway. Then after that, Sam Harris saw us in that show. It was a very funny show, probably the funniest show we ever did. Mm -hmm. And he signed us up to do Coconuts. So we did Coconuts as a film. We never did Coconuts uh, on the stage. No, I'm sorry, I... Uh... I must have that mixed up with animal crackers. No, that was the... Yeah. Right? Coconuts was a film. And while we were appearing on Broadway in Coconuts, we were making animal crackers in Astoria for Paramount. Again under Sam Harris's management. Then Paramount saw us, and they liked it. Coconuts and animal crackers, so they signed us up for five pictures at Paramount. We came west, and we've been west ever since. Let's see. And then uh, we went with Thalberg at MGM. And then we did independent pictures. We did room service at RKO. And uh, I did a picture with Sinatra without the boys, and I did a picture with Marie Wilson and... and uh, Bendix mm -hmm. and uh, I did a picture with Carmen Miranda called Copacabana with pretty lousy picture mm -hmm. but uh, oh, some were good and some were bad and that's the way it is with everybody what was the first was the first group of pictures the coconuts animal crackers monkey business uh
1935. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand that this was, uh, this is when you went under the wing of Ernie Thalberg that, uh, Right. Do you, you feel that he can he contributed much to... Uh, yeah, a great deal, yeah. yeah. He concentrated on making the stories uh, more sensible. His theory was you could be just as funny and have a logical story than to be funny like in Duck Soup and have a crazy story. Mm -hmm. And he was right. Those pictures did a much bigger gross than the ones we did at Paramount. I see. And uh, the uh, uh, day at the races. Uh, it was Thalberg. Mm -hmm. You also you of the of the two pictures you you favor the United United uh, the Opera. Mm -hmm. I just read that they took a poll in Canada, and they said it was the third funniest movie ever made. Yes. And they had Buster Keaton's General. Second place. That's right. Second place in the Chaplin picture, and I don't agree with them. I think Night at the Opera was better than both of them. I think Chaplin did a lot of much better pictures than the one they chose for that. That was the it was a sad story about a blind girl, and I don't think that was his best picture by far. It was a dramatic picture, had some funny stuff in it, mm -hmm. but uh, never could understand why they had Keaton voted second. Of course, this was in Canada. I suppose in another country, it might have been different. Mm -hmm. Do you have any comment to make about uh, room service uh, as a film? I think it was one of the funniest pictures we made. Yes, I saw it recently. I, yeah, it was a terribly funny picture. Was that was that as successful as yeah. the Metro Group? And, yeah, mm -hmm. it was very successful. And then at the at the circus and um, go west. Uh, is there anything particular you can mention about the making of those films or? Well. In the meantime, Thalberg had died, and we were under different management then. And I think uh, of Go West and the circus and uh, the big store, I think the big store was the funniest of the, those three. Mm -hmm. That was your last for Metro. Yeah. And then you made Night in Casablanca. Uh, this was this was uh, fair. Fair film. I didn't like it much. It had some funny stuff in it. Mm -hmm. All the pictures had some funny stuff in it, but some were better than others, which is only normal, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think Go West was probably the worst picture we made. Oh, I see. I I disliked it very much. Mm-hmm. Had a funny scene at the finish with the train binding. Yeah. Had some funny stagecoach scene in there and cute thing, but. Well, when, uh, uh, away from pictures, did you, uh, did you and your brothers socialize very much or you led your own individual yeah, lives? Yeah. Or? We were always very close. Hmm. Never had a fight in all the years we were together. Hmm. And. Did did each member of the team contribute something oh, sure. to the whole? I mean, oh, ideas and script. Of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> was there any one of them uh, who who uh, had some unusual, something unusual to offer uh, as a team? I mean, for example, you could write uh, maybe uh, 
uh, certain gags, and then one of the other brothers would be good at doing something else, or, or did you just work as a team and everybody just sort of worked together? Well, I was the talker of the three. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chico was a comedy straight man for me, mostly, and also for Harpo. And Harpo's business and pantomime and gags, it was mostly his own. Mm -hmm. I see. Now, would you ever care to go back to pictures again or do any? Do you have anything no. planned? Mm hmm. Don't forget, I did a quiz show for 14 years. Yes, I know. Very good one, too. It was the only honest quiz show was ever on the air. This is true. Hmm. All the others were investigated after the scandals. I see. About the book, the Groucho, uh, the, the letters, mm -hmm. letters from Groucho, I believe it's called, uh, <clears throat> which is being released by Simon Schuster, uh, I know you explained to me earlier about how you came to put those together. Would you tell us once more so we have it on the tape? I have it transcribed, you know, mm -hmm. about the letters of how you... Well, I've always been a letter writer and a writer of books and jokes and gags and magazines. And uh, I used to have a lot of fun writing letters to people who uh, who also were good letter writers. I had the best. I had Goody Ace and James Thaber and Fred Allen and people like that. You can't get better. I didn't choose them. It just happened that they, uh, we became correspondents, that's all. And then they piled up in the office. My secretary at the time, she wouldn't get rid of them. I said, get rid of those, will you? I stepped all over them all the time. See, there's many more letters in the, were in the books we couldn't use. Two-thirds, we had uh, three times as many letters as we used. And uh, she said, no, keep the letters. A lot of them are very good, and someday you may want to use them for something. I didn't figure out why. But after she left us, had all these letters. I told you about the, being on the Carson show one night and talking about being an inveterate letter writer. And the head of the Congressional Library in Washington heard the show that night. I'm trying to think of his name. Very peculiar name. Uh, anyway, I can't think of it now. So he said he'd like to see some of those letters because if they were anything like the your conversation on the quiz show and in the movies you made, they ought to be pretty funny. So I sent him a few, and then he asked for more, and he finally says, could we have all the letters you have, and we'd like to keep them here. Here's an example of American humor in the 1935s until the 1965s. So I sent them there. Then I said, long as they had these, I ought to get a publisher. If they thought they were good enough to be published, I'd go ahead and let... Uh, Simon Schuster, who published uh, two books from me before. I think. So that's how the whole bit started. And uh, everybody seems to like the letters, a few people who've read them. And I'm pretty sick of them myself. <laughs> I understand it's the second printing now of the book. Is that even released yet? Yeah. First printing was 25,000, the second printing was 10. 
So it looks like this book may be a big seller. You see, most people don't buy books of letters. They buy books of violence or romantic books. Or few people buy poems or old letters between Bernard Shaw and a couple of women he corresponded with. And they have been other famous letters, but uh, in this era, I don't think there are any been published in recent years. Simon Schuster did a book of letters about 30 years ago uh, with uh, Keats and Shelley and Browning and uh, uh, famous politicians and rulers and all kinds. Of very interesting book, too. You can get it in paperback. You ought to read it. <laughs> Liberal education. <laughs> I'd rather read your book. Oh. Well, I think you've got enough. For, this fellow isn't here. Yes. Ten minutes. Thank you, Mr. Marks. All right. We have just listened to the practically unheard until now audio of Raymond Rohauer's 1967 Gallery of Modern Art interview with Groucho Marx. Thank you, Mike, for allowing this to come to light here on the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Uh, f- I, I have, um, I'm sorry, but I have, I do have a lot of questions and thoughts, and I'm, I bet uh, that you guys can even help me out on some of this stuff as we go. Let's do it. it it's it, you can't help but notice how how nervous Raymond Rohauer is, mm, you know, not what I was especially in the beginning. Yeah, it's it's almost like a uh, doctor patient interview. <laughs> Are you taking your medication? Yes, uh, you know, it's like it's just okay, good. Um, so. Ray Rohar, probably not the best interviewer. And, Gr- and Groucho seems already kind of grumpy, in the, certainly in the beginning, like he doesn't necessarily want to be there, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Groucho s- sounds very slow and and uh, unhappy in this interview. Um, but, you know, it's actually earlier than it seems. This is 1967, um, early in the year. Groucho's 76 years old. Uh, he's still four years away from his first stroke. You know, this is not the feeble old Groucho that we think of from uh, 10 years later, um, you know, seven, eight years later. Um, but yeah, he's he's not at his most ebullient in this interview. That's for sure. I was wondering, maybe you guys know the answer to this. Maybe Rohauer, his real area of expertise was a little earlier, silent comics on film. Maybe Rohauer wasn't, as comfortable talking about the Marx Brothers uh, because it wasn't his area. Yeah, and I think part of part of the thing with Groucho is he, he's being asked very kind of entry level questions, which he probably, you know, wasn't expecting. He was thinking this was more likely to be a you know a kind of a glowing tribute from from a from an obsessive fan. But it was more like you know how did you get your start? What was your first film? All that kind of stuff, you know. So I think on both sides, it's it's kind of stilted, isn't it? But but fascinating to listen to. And maybe too, it's like. Just even off the top, he's asking Groucho about the coconuts. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, you know the name of the movies? You know, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, Groucho keeps reminding him, like, we were in vaudeville for years. You know, we were on Broadway. Rohauer seems to, everything begins with the first film for him. Groucho makes some interesting mistakes as well, doesn't he? Some of which uh, Rohauer obviously spotted and corrected in the in the printed version. Uh, some of which he doesn't and uh, and carries right over. Like he says, um, 
that they were uh, making animal crackers as a film while they were uh, performing coconuts on stage. That that makes it into the uh, into the, the printed one. But uh, Gretchen says um, we, we did coconuts as a film. We never did coconuts on the stage. Yeah. I mean, I presume. Yeah, I don't know what he's getting mixed up there. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to to turn that around and say, oh well, obviously what he meant was. You know. there, there was a derailment. He did that, and then I think he sort of got back on track and didn't self-correct, but then just sort of said it correctly. But yeah, you're right. I, mm. I remember that. Maybe he's getting confused between coconuts and monkey business. Um, it's he, not he, coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he also makes it sound like uh, they signed a five-picture deal at Paramount as a result of the success of Coconuts and Animal Crackers on Broadway. Yes, yeah. His voice, too, is like, you know, you're talking about sort of where he was age-wise. It is interesting because it made me wonder, is that sort of like if you're just sitting with him in his living room, is that where his voice is at that time? You know what I mean? That's just his complete... And it's sort of between... Like post stroke is, is down here, way down here. But this is sort of still in the front of his. Is that more? It's not. I, I don't know if I'm getting the distinction, but there is a yeah. weird slight distinction, you know. Yeah, it's like um, somewhere between "You Bet Your Life" Groucho and Carnegie Hall Groucho, but it's definitely a. He's not performing here. He's talking quietly. The interview was conducted in person at Groucho's home. There are photographs of Rohauer sitting there with a little tape recorder. And um, so, you know. And presumably, he's he, the deal is it's going to be a for a print interview. He's not expecting anybody to, right. be, to be listening to it other than Rohauer. So he's not, you know, he doesn't feel the, the, the need to, uh, to, to come forward in, in any uh, strong way. Groucho had little awareness of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Although there, there is in that same, I don't know if it's the same pictures that I saw, but he took a picture from that interview of him, like his head under a lamp as if it's a hat yeah. and he's got the cigar. And so I guess he, for a second, turned the performance face on for, at least for the cameras. That's right. Maybe you could answer this. I didn't know the reference to uh, a man of her choice. Uh, yeah. Do you know what that is? I don't it's an interesting one. Yes, it was a stage production that Groucho appeared in when he was a teenager. It was one of his first jobs. It was a touring production, very kind of third rate. Um, and Groucho had a, a speaking role in it. It's obviously news to Rohauer because in uh, Groucho refers to it by its proper title, the man of her choice. But it's the transcription makes it the man of our choice, um, which is the way it appears in the printed uh Gallery of Modern uh-huh. Interview. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a true thing. I mean, Groucho seems very ready to talk about the early stage years. And I think he's maybe at the point in his life where the early years are much more vivid for him than the more recent ones. Um, and Roe Howard kind of keeps sort of powering forward to talk about the films. Right off the bat, you know, at the very beginning when Rohauer says, his first question is, I wonder if you have any comments to make about working with your brothers. <laughs> <I'm> like, <"Whoa." laughs> and Groucho says, uh, well, what kind of comments? You know, what, <laughs> what are you no, asking we're here to about? Talk about? We're here to talk about Chaplin. <laughs> These interviews, you always have to, to position them. Uh, you have to think where the, you know, where the... The, the story is at this point of the Marx Brothers. You know how much is 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 um, you know is known. How much has become legend. You know, so so you know you think 
where does this stand, you know, on the, the duck soup night at the opera um, issue, you know, and, and, and also I was very struck by um, when Rohara asks him about um, how responsible for their success Minnie was. Um, and I was expecting, you know, this very fulsome, ah, we'd have been nothing without her. But no, you get, she was a contributing factor. I wouldn't say she was largely responsible. <laughs> a really kind of sour sort of, um, you know, dismissal of that of the whole mini legend. Really uh, interesting. Yeah, that jumped out at me too. And I wonder what we can attribute it to. I mean, the um, kind of lionization of Minnie as the creator of the Marx Brothers was certainly in place by this time. I mean, the Kyle Crichton book is, is full of that. Um, and so maybe mm. it was just the mood Groucho was in or something. But yeah, he does, does not <laughs> sing any songs for Minnie. The one time he wanted to get the record straight in this little lonely <laughs> taped interview. Yes. <laughs> he, he says that Minnie was misty eyed about show business. N- yes, misty-eyed. You know, because of Al Sheen. Yeah. Not that she was a brilliant, you know, uh, visionary, just that she was misty eyed about show business and she thought it would be a great thing for us so we wouldn't have to work. It was just interesting to listen to it to just see if there's new things that we don't know or at least maybe I don't remember about the lore of the Marx Brothers, but uh, he talked about during the vaudeville when they were singing together and then people didn't like them so much. So he said, then we decided to do comedy, right? We decided to be funny. But doesn't that take away from the uh, Nagadocious story where that was the moment that they accidentally decided to be funny? You know what I mean? In other words, it sounded like it was a conscious decision. Okay, now since the singing isn't going that great, let's try comedy, right? I mean, that was that's at least a story I know of, like the Nacogdoches is full of roaches story. Yeah, I think the familiar Nacogdoches story is so largely fictional, you know, and it's a kind of like it's a convenient anecdote that captures the truth in a way of what happened with the transition, realizing that they were better and more effective as a comedy act with music than they had been as a musical act with comedy. Um and the convenience and sort of neatness of that anecdote has obscured the real truth, which is that it was a gradual transition that right from the beginning they were doing comedy and right to the end they were doing music. But indeed, in the 1910s, there was a moment of of realization like, oh, we're not mostly a musical act. We're mostly an irreverent comedy act. And you do see that in the interviews from this period. Occasionally, Groucho will forget that there is a party line. You know, there's an official version of this that has been printed and repeated a lot. Stick to the script. (laughs) He also completely reinvents the story of the the Groucho letters, doesn't he? He says that uh, he was talking about them on the Carson show in the 60s, uh, that they, 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 they then went to the Congressional Library uh, and then after that, he had the the idea to do them as a book. Yeah. Um, when in fact the the book had been had been announced as early as uh, as 1952. Oh wow. Yeah, he's he's interesting on that, and yet he's eager to talk. I mean, he, he seems more uh, interested in talking about the Groucho letters than about anything mm. else. <laughs> Rohauer asks him. Yes. <laughs> the thing that grabbed me though when he was talking about the letters is that. He's saying we have so many more letters that didn't go into book. Mm. And it's like, all right, do we call Robert Bader and tell him <laughs> to uh, do uh, Groucho letters too? You know? Oh, it could be done. Yeah, it really could be done. 
yeah, presumably they're just sitting about in that in that office. Yeah, yeah. I, when I was at the Smithsonian, I wasn't even there to look at letters, but I kept seeing letters, and I was like, I've never seen that one before. That'd be great. There's some interesting stuff about wigs um, in the interview um, that jumped out at me. Two two things about wigs. Uh, one thing is that in the audio interview that we've just heard, Groucho is talking about Harpo's early role in the act, and he says Harpo played. Groucho's exact words are, Harpo played a butcher boy with a yellow wig, a red wig, and a basket of Frankfurters. Like, he calls Harpo's wig yellow, then he sort of corrects himself and says red. In the print version, it's just a yellow wig. And I assume Rohauer felt he was making a correction there because Harpo's wig seems yellow in the films and that's how he, how he knew them. Um, so that's an interesting little f- flying in the face of what we now know to be the historical record. Then later on, Groucho does the same thing when describing his own costume in the schoolroom act. He says, I was wearing a gray wig, comma, a white wig. In In print, that became simply a white wig. And Groucho refers to himself in that schoolteacher character. He says that he looked older than Mark Twain. And I, that line jumped out at me all times that I've listened to this interview in the last week. And I realized, you know, Mark Twain died when Groucho was 20 years old. And, and during Groucho's childhood, Mark Twain was like the same kind of figure George Burns was during my childhood, you know, like an elder statesman of humor. Um, but And then also that when Twain died, when Groucho was 20, Twain was only 74. So Groucho giving this interview is already older than Mark Twain ever got to be. But it's a reminder of how long ago the Marx Brothers happened. It also made me think for a second, like maybe he and his mind was picturing, what's his name who did the one-man show as Mark Twain? Hal Uh, Holbrook, um, yeah. Maybe maybe he's thinking Hal Holbrook put on a lot of makeup to make himself look younger. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting, too, how he really loved room service so much. Yes. Some very interesting opinions. Yeah, yeah. Very high on room service. The big store, the funniest, he says, is the funniest of the of the three crap ones. <laughs> but but the, the one that's going to really uh, sing out, I think, to our <laughs> listeners is, uh, particularly since uh, it, it's changed in the, in the uh, transcript version, uh, Go West was the worst film they made. I disliked it very much, he says. But yeah. then again, he... It, it seemed like he, to me at least, liked the weakest part of it. I mean, to me, the weakest part is the train stuff and all the sort of shenanigans, the shtick that happens with that. To me, the more interesting thing is when they're talking to each other and being in real scenes. So he liked the train part the most. Yeah, I wonder if that was sincere or if Groucho is uh, repeating what's already become common wisdom about Go West. Like, oh, it's not one of the better ones, but... You know, so many people have said over the years, but that train sequence at the end, it doesn't really seem like it's up Groucho's alley, that sequence. But the room, room service is the strangest, isn't it? Because that was right from day one, that was that was felt to be a disappointment. And I've never heard him or anyone else say otherwise. And yet he's absolutely emphatic here, isn't he? That it, that it was a, a wonderful film, one of their best. One of the funniest pictures we made. It was a terribly funny picture, he says. Maybe it, maybe it was financially very successful, and that's what he liked about it. <laughs> it was also interesting to hear that he said that they never finished Humorisk. Was, wasn't there ever a finished? Yes. He does say that, yes. He says it was never finished. 
Humor Risk seems like the Marx Brothers project that Rohauer might well have been the most interested in. Yes. <laughs> and he, he does ask about Which it. Which brings me actually to my, my, my favorite part of the whole interview is when he starts talking about this um, this poll that has been conducted yes. in Canada um, of the, th- the three greatest comedies of all time. And uh, the first one apparently was, according to the transcript, was, um, was um, the... Um, Gold Rush. The Gold Rush, yes, that's right. Groucho is obviously thinking of City Lights, isn't he? Because yes. there's a whole section oh, right. that's, that's that's not in the printed version where he says, "Oh, it's a drama about a blind girl." So, uh, so yes. and the second and the second is the general, and the third is is a night at the opera, and, and he he's emphatic that a night at the opera was was better than both of them, and he said, "I never could understand why they had Keaton," and I'm thinking, "Do you know who you're talking to here?" You know? <laughs> yeah. But I, I love the way he—he, he, I love the way he rationalizes it. This outrageous idea that the general might be a better film than than a, a Night at the Opera. He puts it down to the fact that, that it was Canadians who done, yes. done the voting. You know, what do they know? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know about that. I haven't been in Canada in years. <laughs> it is a weird thing. If for a second I could talk about, like when, like when I worked on Futurama, for example, Matt Groening would always say, "Do not look at." the press don't go online especially and read what people are thinking don't look at the the ratings of of what which one's best or which episode's better what writers are better than others i mean it really gets into the weeds but knowing that stuff is lingering and i, and I don't know if i'm just kind of projecting what Groucho was thinking because when you see like a poll or something like that there is a thing where you can't help but take it to heart i could read like you know 30 comments online of how much somebody liked an episode of mine and there's one person in there that like he's the worst writer ever of all you know then that's the one that sticks out so in other words i think i wonder especially at that time where there were probably was not a lot of press so much about the march brothers movies and he finds a poll and it's like well this is being magnified to him so maybe that's why he kind of overanalyzed it and overthought it you know one of the most interesting discrepancies between the audio version and the print version of this interview comes when Rohauer is asking Groucho which is his favorite of the Paramount films. He lists the five Paramount films, and he says, which one of that group do you like best? Groucho says, Duck Soup. Rohauer says, Duck Soup, directed by Leo McCary. And Groucho says, mm-hmm. Okay, so there's Groucho in 1967 saying Duck Soup is his favorite of the Paramounts. In print, however, the way this comes across is very different. In print, Rohauer says, which one of that group do you like the best? And Groucho says, Duck Soup. Leo McCary directed it. Uh, You know, and actually it was Rohauer who had pointed that out in the real live interview. Now, that has been quoted a lot as evidence of Groucho's respect for Leo McCary and mm. preference, which was apparently real, for Duck Soup in places like the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia. This is no knock on, on our friend Glenn Mitchell, who's been on the show. You know, Glenn was quoting accurately the printed version of this interview. But when asked for his favorite Paramount, Groucho never said, Duck Soup, McCary directed it, which is the way it has sounded all these years. 
it's interesting too, isn't it, that this is obviously kind of halfway between the Night at the Opera is is the best one and and the Duck Soup is the best one. That you know that that sort of switch happened around about now, didn't it? So we so we do get him coming out strongly for Duck Soup, which he didn't always do. Um, you know, sometimes he would he would just write off all the Paramount films as uh, you know kind of apprentice works. Um, but he's also he's also still sticking very much to the. Uh, to the the veneration of Thalberg and and um, uh, and the committing the, uh, the, the the causal fallacy of of saying um, the, 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 he he concentrated on making the stories more sensible he said um, and then he says uh, and he and he was right because it had a, they had a, those films had a much bigger gross than than Paramount but of course you know correlation isn't causation um, and there's really no no reason to think that that it was sensible stories that made those films so so successful <laughs> more likely you know curiosity that here here they were making a, a big glossy film for mgm i should imagine that would be enough to get a, a lot of extra people in and i looking at the reviews and things as well i, I i'm not aware of any that said you're going to like this one even if you don't normally like them because it's got a sensible story <laughs> <laughs> rip roaring with laughs girls and a sensible story it it, it makes you wonder like what is what are his metrics? You know, I wonder if they would change if it's. I like this one because it was the most successful at the box office, or I like it because it got better reviews. But yet, he probably like sort of more of the duck soup ones where he really gets to be the most pure Groucho. I mean, I mm. hope that, I, I'm yeah. sure there's no telling, but. And as the '70s move on, obviously, it becomes more and more apparent to him that that it's the paramount stuff that the young fans like so he kind of shifts a little that way but but still you know the fact that Thalberg in in his mind kind of pulled them out of virtually out of the uh, the great the show business grave um you know, he never lets that go yeah and as late as the carnegie hall era one man shows the the one film clip that they played at the concert was the stateroom scene from a night at the opera um which is not well, of course, it's a great comedy scene and deserves its reputation. But, you know, it's not the greatest showcase for Groucho's abilities as a comedian. You know, you would think uh, he would show like the strange interlude scene from Animal Crackers or something. That's more of a pyrotechnic display of his personal abilities. Yes. Yeah. But the, Maybe the reverence for Thalberg. It's the best kind of short, self-contained piece that all three of them, you know, get a, get a good showing in. I could sort of also get back to uh, the big store. I I can sort of see why he liked that above the other of the lesser, mostly just because of the beginning, like the first fifteen minutes or so from when he's in his office and the and the the, the hot plate in the in the desk and all the shtick that's going on and Margaret mm. Dumont is there and and when he gets back to her office with them and uh, all those moments to me feel like a little bit closer to the old school style it, it, it sort of derails not too long after that but you know absolutely yeah I, I i agree with you and and i and i agree with him um but it's just very very interesting that i've i've never come across him saying that anywhere else yeah i, I think uh i mean sometimes i'm not sure where the difference is if there is one between like the opinions expressed on this podcast and the opinions of the larger <laughs> fan community but it, it feels to me like the big store's reputation has risen quite a bit and it's now sort of generally acknowledged as being stronger than at the circus and go west. 
Um, it's just in Groucho's case, especially at this time, he had anecdotes about the making of At the Circus that he told a lot, like the gorilla suit anecdote. Also, Lydia, the tattooed lady, of course, remained, uh, you know, one of the crown jewels in his musical repertoire. Um, so I would have been less surprised to hear him prefer At the Circus. Yeah. But it was just interesting to me, really, to hear, just to capture that moment in time, because it's just on that tape, it's sort of a Groucho, you don't hear that often. The only other time is that, like that 15 second clip when he's going to see the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. What do you want? Well, what are you going to do in there, Groucho? Are you going in to listen to Beatles and then get drunk? You wouldn't dare. Are you really? Of course I am. Brought the charming family with you. Whenever I can get a free drink, I'll go anywhere. You bet your life. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very funny answer. <laughs> Yes, it's it's a little kind of in the, in the close to this sort of Groucho. Uh, there's a TV interview from at some point in the '60s. I think High Gardner, a newspaper columnist. I think it was High Gardner interviewing Groucho, and it's a very serious interview. He's very dour. Uh, he sounds a little bit like the way he sounds in this Rohauer tape. It's the one where he's talking about like. Uh, uh, alcohol and its effect on children is like they see the they see the parents boozing and they're likely to start boozing too you know that one I, yes, I, somebody yeah. will correct me if i'm wrong i think it's high gardener uh, that that seemed to me like i recognized this groucho from that yeah that's interesting so the pictures in that pamphlet were that was from his house is that is that what you're saying that was in his house from this interview i i believe so and the, the photographs in the um, Gallery of Modern Art booklet say this interview with Groucho Marx and Raymond Rohauer was recorded March 8th, 1967 in Beverly Hills, California. I assume uh, that means it was at Groucho's house, but I'm not there, sure. There was a moment where uh, the uh, Groucho's house that he last lived in, where Steve Stolier worked, I happened to catch uh, the house was for sale and they were having an open house. So I called Steve right away. I go, we we got a journey. We got an adventure. And so Steve took me to Groucho's house. This was, geez, I can't remember, five, six years ago. Um, so anyway, he brought me in the house, and it was great to have a room-by-room -room understanding of like where everything was, because uh, I'm sure you remember whether it was scrapbook or whatever, where you would see different parts of his house at that time, like this sunken living room on the couch, the table with his awards and all that sort of stuff. So I was able to walk around with Steve and go, this is where the table was with the awards and the hat rack was right here. And Steve was like, this is my office. And Steve, of course, you know, Steve being Steve, he was disappointed over the remodel stuff. Like um, the uh, Groucho's big office was now like this massive bathroom. And you know, so you walk in and he was also disappointed that the the doorway that you would use to get into his office was now a wall. And he said, of all things, it was a life-size painting of Elvis, who he said stole Oh, yes, Groucho's. he writes about that in his book. Yeah. But how perfect was that, at least for me, because I could recognize these spots. But to Steve, he was a little more upset. Of, like, it's not the same and blah, blah, blah. But it was he still had the details of, like, right here was this ceramic bowl sort of near the doorway and he would always know when Erin was home because she would come in 
and throw the car keys in there. And then he would hear the clank of that bowl and he would sort of tense up like, here it comes. It's starting, you know. You know, he took me into a big room, which was sort of a living room now, and he was disappointed because it used to be the screening room. But, of course, I could imagine it of, like, oh, yeah, I can clearly see, like, imagine, like, what it might have been might have been like. And, you know, I could, I sort of felt the spirit of it. He did kind of, but, again, he was sort of disappointed that it wasn't exactly the same. Wow, what an experience to get, just to get a, a walkthrough in that house with Steve. That must have been just extraordinary. Yeah. It was great. In fact, he took me outside, and uh, at the end of the driveway, there was a sewer opening in the curb, and he goes, this is where the cops found the drugs that they thought Aaron was oh, giving yeah. to Groucho. So he, he knew everything very, obviously, specifically, you know, so. Well, uh, before we get to our uh, closing thoughts on the Rohauer interview, I just wanted to raise, I don't know if we have any any thoughts or answers to this, but there are a few mysteries connected with this interview that have to do with things that appear in the print version but are not in the recorded version. Um, And I noticed three big things like this. One is that the print version of the interview begins with an account of how the Marx Brothers got their nicknames. It's convincingly Groucho. I mean, it sounds like him telling the story more or less the way he's told it at other times, but uh, it's not in the recording. And one thing about the recording, the beginning seems complete. It doesn't feel like it begins in progress. So I don't know why that's not in the recording. My guess there uh, was that Roha probably intended to ask him that and forgot to, and only realized afterwards that what was going to be his big first question, he didn't ask so he just went and you know went and got the information and then just wrote it up himself that that was my my best guess could be yeah or maybe even called groucho on the phone to ask the question yeah, cuz his interview with maxine does touch on the nickname story and maybe after talking to maxine he realized oh i really should get that from groucho yeah or 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 just going to a previous book or whatever and just saying, well, just lift it and pretend it happened. If, mm. if, if Roar is such as you, talk to him as, you know, if he, if he wasn't afraid to have a little bit of, uh, take a little bit of uh, license, yes. I guess. <laughs> and by license, I mean copyright license. <laughs> Maybe you guys just need to flip the cassette over to the other side. <laughs> Uh, and, and one more example of uh, something that's in the print version and not the recording is some remarks about Margaret Dumont, which, again, are familiar enough. They sound like things Groucho has said, um, but they're not in the audio version that we've heard just now. Uh, Rohauer says that Margaret Dumont was a definite asset in the films. And Groucho repeats about how she didn't get the jokes and he does the uh, fighting for your honor, which is more than you ever did. Uh, line, you know, it's a standard answer, but uh, it's not in the audio version. And then at the very end, too, the print version ends with Rohauer saying that this interview is going to be in the brochure for the Marx Brothers event at the Gallery of Modern Art. He says this brochure will tell all about the Marx Brothers. And Groucho says, all? I don't know if we want that printed. Uh, Which, there's no trace of that in the audio version either. Just curious. Right, the audio version sounds like they literally walk out of the room, you know? They're just mm, done. Yeah. Know. 
and I think Groucho calling time on it earlier than than Rohar expected. So I think I think we are looking at creative license there, aren't we? It's a it's a it's a good kind mm-hmm. of punchline that uh, a punchline that that obviously didn't uh, materialise in in real life. Just two other little things um, that leapt out at me. Uh, one was another opinion that, that he gives, um, which uh, furthers the sense that this is some kind of AI fake, uh, where Groucho is specifically saying things that we want him <laughs> want to hear him say. Um, on top of the uh, his comments on um, room service and the big store and and go west. Noah, I'm sure you your ears pricked up at him saying that uh, Alsatia's was probably the funniest show we ever did. Yeah. I- I've made use of that quote uh, quite a bit. It's on the I'll Say She Is website, I'llSaySheIs.com, for anyone curious. Uh, yeah, it's it's great that he said that. Um, and actually, when I hear about this interview, that's my first association with it. Oh, that's right. the one where he said I'll Say She Is was the funniest thing they ever did. Yeah. The other thing that made me laugh a lot is when he, he asks him about uh, You Bet Your Life. And of all the things he... he potentially could say about that it was huge success for him he says it was the only honest quiz show on the air and i thought <laughs> yes. so this lovely idea that there could be any possible doubt that there might be some kind of chicanery going on this this show where people walk away with like ten dollars or something you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess maybe the quiz show scandals were still a fresh enough memory for people that just mentioning a quiz show you had to kind of disclaim any crookedness (laughs) what's funny too though if you listen to some of those and i'm not sure if it's more the radio ones but you do hear sometimes people off camera sort of helping like the way no mechanics you know they hear like a quick discussion of like the answer and then grouch said okay that's good not that uh, you but you're right yeah it's a year you're welcome away with ten dollars anyway because you know (laughs) Whatever you hear, like tonight, you might win $5,000. And then the question is always, who was the cousin of the king of the South Lebanese? You know, like, and you're like I, I don't. It's also one of those times when like the, the Groucho voice start gets in his way a little bit, where whenever he has to be sincere, it's always a little bit of a problem because that the very sound of that voice means insincerity to us it's a it's a, an instrument of irony and saying the opposite of what you really mean um and so when he earnestly tells you that it was not a crooked quiz show you start to think well wait a minute what <laughs> maybe it was it's like when he does the, the DeSoto commercials you know and suddenly that voice is so earnestly talking about push button driving and how what yeah. a great innovation it is <laughs> And you you immediately feel that that couldn't be true. His his go to always too on the quiz show was, "Come on, you should know this." <laughs> yes, but and he thought he thought that was being nice, you know, kind of protecting them a little bit. <laughs> where it, it kind of doesn't quite do that, you know. It it's not insulting necessarily, but it's just a weird. It was like his go to, thinking he was making them feel better. By telling them basically that he was disappointed in them, like you, you yes. should—you're better than this. You should know. Maybe it's a little bit of the old school teacher character. <laughs> um, we want to thank you once again, Micro, for joining us um, for this episode, for being such a brilliant interview subject, and for bringing such a brilliant interview subject with you in the form of this practically unheard Groucho audio. Uh, We're going to get to our closing music. But first, a quick report, a quick update on our life as Patreon 
content creators. Our contest has a winner. Back in November, we launched our contest to see which of our listeners could identify all or most of the Marx Brothers-related figures depicted in Sil Leva's beautiful artwork for our November postcard. This will be old news to those who are members of the Marx Brothers Council group on Facebook or who read our Patreon page regularly. But if you don't belong to either of those categories, you can now know that the winner was Emma Levitt. And we are very pleased that she won the contest. Second place is a tie between Nick Floyd and Fred Velez who each identified 37 out of 45 faces. Emma got 41. And third place is Shannon Gergen, who identified 36. Uh, we want to thank everyone who participated in the contest, especially Syl. Let's go with first names only. Syl for the artwork and Sean for the prize. And the January postcard, our first postcard of 2024, is now on its way through the mail to our subscribers at the top four levels, it is once again a postcard with uh, great artwork by a guest artist, in this case, Mr. Bob Stryker. So look for that in your mailbox coming up soon. And as always, uh, Mike, we uh, leave it to our guests to select our closing music each episode. Uh, What do you got for us? Well, uh, in my continued efforts throughout my life to find the oddest nuttiest versions of stuff we're familiar with this is you know uh groucho doing captain spaulding and you're going oh again captain spaulding but no this is from the craft music hall with special guests uh soupy sales and dick cabot <laughs> so this is what? probably not yes <laughs> so good luck with that one everybody <laughs> <laughs> enjoy at last we are to meet him, the famous Captain Spaulding, when climate's hot and scalding, the captain has arrived, most heartily we greet him, with plain and fancy cheering, until he's hard of hearing, the captain has arrived. Captain Jeffrey Spalding. He's announcing Captain Jeffrey Spalding. Hello, I must be going. I cannot stay, I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. You're kidding, aren't you? I'll stay a week or two, I'll stay the summer through, but I am telling you, I must be going. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Cassell. 
Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on X. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! I ran into Chuck McCann, right, out here in L.A., and uh, he was great, by the way. And in fact, I was at a diner in the middle of the night uh, because when my sons were young, like if they couldn't sleep, we would go for a drive, and then we would go to this 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 diner. And so Chuck McCann is there, one o'clock in the morning, and he has a table of friends, and people are laughing in the middle of the night. My sons are asking who he was and what was going on. And I was able to pull up on my phone Chuck McCann clips. And I talked to my sons about like how important Chuck McCann was to me as a a kid. And I was able to stay at like the clip of him and Dick Van Dyke doing Laurel and Hardy and stuff like that. So I I told the waitress, like, can you take care of their tab for me and don't tell them who it was? I just felt like I needed to share with him. And then, of course, he had to know who paid the... uh, who paid the tab. And then he, the waitress points me out and he was so nice and gracious and, uh, went to his car and got his book and signed it to my kids and said, you know, call me whatever. But he told me the story of, um, cause he did the uh, right guard commercial with Groucho. Yes. Right. And so I had to ask him about that. And first of all, he said, Groucho was great and we hit it off. And we had so much fun in that day that Groucho invited me to his house. And we went into a screening room and he played uh, a day at the races with him doing live commentary throughout. So as the movie's playing, Groucho said, he didn't want to do this scene, but we made him a book, you know, and he would stop and start and explain all this stuff. And he said he was in all his glory. Uh, And then unfortunately he said like an hour in, Aaron came in and just threw him out. It's time to go. Got to go. So I was sort of kind of disappointed in that, but uh, but I thought that was such a great wow. moment. I mean, if you can imagine having Groucho doing a live commentary on one of his movies. Wow, that's amazing. We, we've heard a, a somewhat similar story from Andy Marks, who had that experience watching uh, A Night at the Opera with Groucho, and, and Jack Nicholson was in attendance, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. There's another sort of just little funny story. I mean, it's... When... Uh, when Gabe Kaplan did the Groucho mm-hmm. uh, HBO special, and I think this was not long after after I saw Frank, I saw Frank do it in New York City when it first when he first did it. My dad and I went, and we had a great time. And then my friend and I watched Gabe Kaplan do the HBO special, and it was certainly compared to Frank, we were sort of like we were kind of making fun of him. You know what I mean? It was like we. It it just didn't hit it for us. And we were just kind of snapping back and forth about, 
you know, in that special, like, no one played Harpo, it was just a light with a horn, and then we suggested yeah. maybe maybe Gabe should have played that part. You know, we were just throwing insults back to each other. But the weird coincidence, we I went to this restaurant where I usually meet up with friends, comedian friends, and that same night, that day, the day, the night of that day, go in a restaurant and Gabe Kaplan walks in. And then everybody turns and everybody like, no, Gabe, hey, come on, sit down. And Gabe Kaplan is sitting right next to me in this weird feeling of like, oh, I just, and then he bought us all dinner. And so I didn't feel great after that. 